Baptist. Uh, we're going to be looking tonight at Luke chapter 3, uh, and it is found in that particular passage there, the ministry of John the Baptist. But as you can see at the top of the page, Matthew also speaks of the ministry of John the Baptist, as does Mark and John as well. Um, and so I pieced them all together here. And what I wanted to do to begin tonight was to read through this document, um, the ministry of John the Baptist, the paper that I gave you. One thing you should know as far as my technique was concerned, uh, my starting point is the black writing. My starting point was Matthew. And then from there I filled in the pieces. So the fact that it's something is not necessarily in green or in red doesn't necessarily mean that it's not found in those books, those Gospels, just that my starting point said it, and so I didn't need to say the exact same thing twice, uh, and so on. All right, does that sound fair? And so we'll read through this, we'll get an overall picture of John the Baptist from all four Gospels, and then we'll go and we'll look closely at the book of Luke. It begins this way. It says, Now in the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius, Caesar, Pontius Pilate, Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iteria, and Trachonitis, and Licinius, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, in the region around the Jordan, and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now you see the word saying is in parentheses. I added that word. That's not in any of Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, but I added it to make a sentence uh, flow for us. And so I'll, you'll see that parentheses, that's what it's there for. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, is what John said. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord and make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Now John wore a, a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. Now we uh, ride camels when we go to Israel. That must not have been a very comfortable outfit that he wore there. They are uh, really rough and, and not very pleasant. Uh, anyway, then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan, they were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw the crowds and many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you? Not a very seeker-sensitive service there. Uh, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to presume and to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these very stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees, and every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, What shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized, and they said, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And, what, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. 
as the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all. This testimony, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem, they asked him, Who are you? And he confessed, and he did not deny, but he confessed, I'm not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Well, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he said, I'm the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, just as the prophet Isaiah said, because they had been sent by the Pharisees. They asked him then, Why are you baptizing, if you're neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? And John answered them, I baptize you with water for repentance. But among you stands one you do not know. He who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry or to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. And these things took place in Bethany across the Jordan. Almost there, everybody. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man that ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came, baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained upon him. But he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I've seen and I've borne witness that this is the Son of God. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth has come through Jesus Christ. And no one has seen him, uh, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. And we'll, let's stop there. Um, all right, so that is uh, sort of the, the full story um, that you can, and, and a lot of this we're familiar with. We, we know the Gospels a little bit. We're like, okay, well, where's that from? And, and so on. So I think it just gives us kind of a greater picture of things. Now I wanted to, what I want to do is I want to go back and I want to look specifically at Luke, which we're studying. And who knows, uh, I'm sure we'll make reference to some of the things we just read about in, uh, in that little document there. Why don't we pray? Father, we thank you for uh, just the fourfold witness of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and we thank you for the, uh, just the full picture that they provide for us of uh, the life and ministry of your Son. And uh, we pray now that as we jump into the book of Luke even more fully, Lord, you would open up our hearts uh, to see and to receive from you. You'd bless our time together, and you'd challenge us, really, Lord, that uh, in the same way the disciples or anyone coming to listen and learn uh, from you as you walk the earth, uh, they left uh, challenged to uh, respond, make a response one way or another to what it is you shared. Lord, we ask that you would do the same in our hearts this evening. And you would bless our time, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so uh, we have seen uh, Luke chapter 1, Luke chapter 2. We've already seen uh, sort of the prediction that Jesus was going to come as well as the prophecy that John the Baptist would come. Uh, both miracles in and of themselves. Uh, John's parents being barren, if you will, for the, uh, a long period of their time into their 60s, and now they're going to be with child, and Jesus is born. So we saw the birth of Christ last year, or last week, I should say, 
we saw him in the temple there confounding uh, the religious leaders with sort of the, the questions that he was asking, not questions from the perspective of him wanting to know, but posing these questions and stumping them, really, where they realized they don't know. Um, so we looked at that. Well, here now we have, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, and we know the reign of Tiberius Caesar, this would bring us to roughly the year 29 uh, A.D., um, or maybe 28 A.D., uh, in that range right there. Uh, it also speaks of Pontius Pilate, who was the governor of Judea. So you, what Luke is going to do is make it very clear, this is when we're talking. Um, so he, he brings up the reign of Tiberius Caesar, which they can go and find. He brings up the reign of Pontius Pilate, which was a brief period of time. It was only about four or five years there in the area of Judea. And so that certainly is narrowing things down. It's real interesting with Pontius Pilate, uh, until the 1960s, uh, scholars, historians, or whatever, seriously doubted whether a Pontius Pilate even existed, because there was no evidence of this particular fellow anywhere outside of the Bible that this Pontius Pilate existed. We know his name very well, because most of us are familiar with the creeds and things like that, crucified under Pontius Pilate, died and was buried, and so on. That poor guy, his name, he said, I don't want anything to do with it. And now every kid knows his name that is learning it uh, as the creeds here. Uh, but there was never any evidence of this guy outside of the Bible until uh, the mid to late 1960s. Uh, there had been a, uh, sort not a drought necessarily, but sort of a low point in the waters. There was a group that was flying over Israel, and they noticed what appeared to them to be a horseshoe type of uh, structure uh, of sorts, a cement type structure, just on the coast of Israel. Uh, and so they say, hey, there's something we've never seen before. Now that the water level is a little bit lower, they could notice it. So they went down, they investigated the archaeologists and everything. And what they discovered was there was what later became known as sort of the swimming pool of a palace. And so they were intrigued by this, and that got them searching out the area. It's the area. Uh, that we went to on our first day of our trip. I think, were you on this last trip? Yeah. Uh, Caesarea, uh, Caesarea by the Sea, sea Maritima. Uh, and so as they're unearthing that, you go there now, it's remarkable. There's a huge amphitheater there, which uh, they actually continue to do shows and things like that um, there. there. They found uh, the chariot race place, huh? Hippodrome. That's a, called a hippodrome? Okay, I think you're right, actually. Um, so they found all sorts of stuff there. They found it was this thriving city, um, of Caesarea by the sea, not to be confused with Caesarea Philippi, which is up in the north region there. And they also found a stone. And on that stone was the engraving of the name Pontius Pilate. And that was the evidence, first evidence of him. And then as they continued on other things, they, they found it just proved it out. So that, that's this particular Pontius Pilate. The, the scholars called up with the Bible, uh, and they discovered the reality of his existence. Um, it goes on and talks about Herod. Now, notice it's going to talk about three tetrarchs. Um, a tetrarch, I guess in our, comparing it to us, so we have a governor, right? Then we also have 21 counties in, in New Jersey. I don't know if anyone here is from Pennsylvania, um, but I know New Jersey. We have 21 counties, and each of those counties have a leader, and we would call them the county executive. In a sense, that's what a tetrarch is, over a particular region, all right, or county, we would call it here. So you have uh, the Caesar, then you have the governor of the area of Judea, then you have these tetrarchs, and they are 
Herod, the Tetrarch of Galilee, that's the northern region, and then his brother Philip, the Tetrarch of the region of Iteria and Trachonitis, and then Lysanias, the Tetrarch of Abilene, which is, I believe, near Maryland. Uh, is that where Abilene is, or Texas, or something like that? I'm just teasing. Anyway, it continues, it says, and it was also, so he narrows it down further, also it was during the high priest of Annas and Caiaphas. Now, it says the high priest, and yet it lists two names there. Well, Annas was the religious high priest. He had kind of been passed through. But he didn't sort of bow quick enough, if you will, to the Roman authorities. So the Roman authorities, who were now in control of the region, they finally said, you can't be high priest anymore. And they appointed this fellow by the name of Caiaphas there. And so Caiaphas was sort of the political appointment in that position. Uh, Annas was the, um, the actual religious one, if you will, um, though I'm sure Caiaphas did uh, religious aspects to it as well. Um, Caiaphas actually was very heavily dependent on Annas during his time as the high priest. Uh, I don't know what to do, help me out here, sort of thing. So anyway, that's the story of why you have two high priests, usually it would just be the one. And it goes on and it says, it was during all of this time, so you have the Caesar, you have the governor, you have these county executives that we're calling them, you have these high priests, you have all these important folks in society, and yet notice it says, that during that time, the word of God came to a guy named John out in the wilderness. Now, John, we read, was a peculiar-looking fellow, at the very least. He, uh, from the earliest days, he was set apart by his parents with sort of this Nazarite vow. Uh, he was out in the wilderness. Now, we think of the wilderness maybe sometimes as like, like uh, evergreen woods and things like that. The wilderness that they're speaking of here would be rocky, deserty, dry land. Nothing lives, really, out there in the wilderness. Um, and this is where John just sort of went off on his own. Some even speculate that he uh, joined the sect of the Essenes and lived out there amongst them. There's no real evidence, necessarily, of that. Uh, but that's where they were, as well, in that area. Um, so he is out there in the wilderness. And while he is there, in this place, the Lord comes and speaks to him and reveals the word of God to him. And obviously it seems that the message that the Lord gave him is what we see in verse 3 here. He went into all the region around the Jordan. So this is sort of uh, the central part from top to bottom, the central part of Israel. He went into all the region around the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And then it goes on and said, this isn't out of nowhere, as it's written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Now that's from Isaiah chapter 40, verses 3 to 5, that speaks those words, and it's very clearly here, it's being applied to the ministry of John the Baptist. So John the Baptist had a ministry of baptism, now and unto repentance. Now, today, still in the church, we baptize. Our purpose for baptism today is different from what it was that John the Baptist was doing. What, John the ba- what we do is 
we baptize as a, sim- a symbol of identification with the work of Christ. It's a, and as we always say, it's an outward sign of an inward work. And I'm declaring, I'm with Christ. I accept his sacrifice for my life, and I'm a new creation in him. What John was doing in his baptism was calling people to recognize their sin and repenting of that so that they would be prepared for the revelation of the Lord, or the Lord's sent one, the Lord's anointed one, who we know the term uh, the Lord's Christ. And so, again, going looking at the prophecy of Isaiah, it says it's a voice crying in the wilderness. Now, that's literal. John was literally in the wilderness. But I think it's also figurative, spiritual as well. Because during this period of time, Israel was in a very dry, rocky, dead, barren place. And to that, John came forth to call the, the Jewish people to prepare the way for the coming of the Messiah. So he's a voice crying in this spiritual wilderness as well as the, the physical wilderness. And he says, prepare because the king is coming. Now, this is an interesting thing to consider. We do it uh, around here as well, certainly. If, if an important person were, to, were gonna make a trip to Ewing, a little while back, uh, President Bush flew into the airport here, and then he was gonna speak down at the arena in Trenton. Um, the first lady, Hillary Clinton, when she was the first lady, she came to the local middle school uh, and spoke to the kids about something over there. Uh, which is amazing to consider that the first lady came into Ewing for whatever reason. Um, you know, so every now and again, some important person will come. Well, what we do, if that is, we try to give the impression that our society is perfect. We don't have garbage on the ground ever in our society. So we go like crazy to clean up our society and to paint all our bridges and no more graffiti and get all the garbage and cut all the lawns and all this sort of stuff. And they drive through thinking, wow, those people, they're like Disneyland. Look how nice it is there. And we know the reality of it. Well, the Romans did the same thing. And so they wanted to prepare the way for when their emperor, their kings, their governors or whatever that weren't typically from that area would come into that area. So if the dirt roads got a little potholy over time, well, they would clean that up and make it so it wasn't potholy. If there were uh, low places, they would be leveled out. Um, If the bridges weren't quite up to what they needed to be, they'd fix them. They prepare the way for the coming of the king. And here, I think John is playing on that, when he, or Isaiah, where it says, prepare the way of the Lord and make his paths straight. And then it goes on and it says, and every valley shall be filled. Now, literally, that's talking about these low points and so that the road is a little more smooth. But I think you can come from the perspective of looking at the following things, valley, mountain, the crooked, and the rough places. Right? And you see those words there are listed in verse 5. That the valley is sort of that, low, that person that is in the low place. That, that person that is sort of in that, that place of humility that the Lord will raise them up. The mountain, if you will, perhaps the person that is in the place of pride, they'll be broken down and made low. The crooked, we might look at that as the person that is in sin, like Jesus would minister to that tax collector or that prostitute, and they, they will be made straight. And then the rough places, you know, the rocky, the hardened, God will break their hearts. Jesus will break their hearts here so that their ways will become level. So this work that the Lord is going to do, John is saying, get ready, be prepared. And then notice verse 6, it says, and all flesh 
shall see the salvation of God. Jews and Gentiles are going to see that Jesus is the Messiah. And we'll talk about that more as we go. So this was John's ministry. Now verse 7 continues. So he said therefore to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Now, that sounds rather uh, put-offish. I'm here, man. You know, like, I'm not saying be happy that I'm here, but why are you yelling at me when I came out here? I'm, nonetheless, I'm here. But part of the reason, or part of the thing that I think is important here is that not everyone that was coming out to see John was coming out prepared to repent uh, and to do those, uh, those things to prepare for the kingdom of God that was coming. That there were some that were coming out just to observe and see what this madman was doing out there. There were others that were coming out to perhaps put a stop to it. Because, you know, you're acting an awful lot like a religious leader, but you're not really a religious leader. You're just some fellow with camel's hair and eating locust or whatever. What gives you the right to speak these things? But they're coming out there as well. So John now, he says, uh, he calls them a brood of vipers. That's a poisonous snake, he calls them. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Then he says, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. If you're just out here going through the motions of repentance, it'll become very evident. And what will the evidence that the repentance was true be? Fruit. There'll be fruit in your life that you're living here. He says, look, don't begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. Now remember, Abraham was the father of the Jewish people. And a lot of people in that day, and maybe even to this day, they took great confidence in the fact, look man, I'm a Jew, I'm good. We as Jews are good with God. Well, that may be true for the vast majority of Jews, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's, it's true for this person that he's talking to. Because every person stands in and of themselves alone before the Lord. Now, let me try to put it in more of our context here. If somebody, you were to talk with somebody, share the gospel with them, maybe there was an aspect of their, their life that caused you to think, that's not really honoring to the Lord. And so you're talking to them, you're sharing with them. Maybe you've even drawn a conclusion, it just doesn't seem to me they know the Lord. You're not determining whether they're going to heaven or hell, but you're looking at their life and you're saying, I don't know, I just don't feel good. You know, so you're talking to them, you're sharing with them, and their response to you is, no, 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 man, I'm good. I'm Catholic. Right, you see? We have Abraham as our father. No, 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 I'm good, I'm good. We're Baptist, my family's Baptist. I go to Calvary Chapel, I'm fine. You see, what John would say is, I don't care where you go. I don't care who you say your descendants are. Bear fruit uh, of your repentance. So don't say, you know, I'm good because my parents, uh, they got me baptized when I was a baby. Don't, I don't need to hear any of that. What I want to see is fruit of your repentance. He goes on and he says, For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Oh, he goes on. And I guess the question is, you know, what are you trusting in for your salvation? Is it your heritage? Is it your background? Is it, you know, so-called your attendance at a particular church or something like that? You signed the card, you said the prayer. Yeah, even that. Another example, absolutely. All right, so then he goes on and he says, I tell you, God is able to, from these stones, I said that, verse 9, even now the axe is laid to the root of the tree. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And what John is saying is, look, you, 
don't tell me that you're children of Abraham. Come to me and tell me that you're a sinner in need of a savior. And then you'll be at the place where God can do a work in your heart, you brood of vipers. Anyway, verse 10, he goes on. He says, and the crowds asked him, well, what then shall we do? And he answered them. Now, I, I think he was likely speaking to some Pharisees or others initially here. But now you have the crowd of people that are calling out questions to him, to them. Today I was sharing with a student that idea that it's the sick that need a physician. Those that are aware of their need. If I'm healthy, I don't go to a doctor. I got a call from my doctor the other day, his, uh, one of his assistants or whatever. It's time to come in for a, a checkup or something. And I'm like, eh, you're just trying to get money off of me or <laughs> whatever. And it probably is time for me to go in for a checkup. But my thinking is, no, I feel good. I'm not sick. I don't need to come in here. But those that know that they're sick, they make the appointment. They call for the appointment. They get there. And Jesus uses that as a, a teaching of, you know, those people that know they have a need, that they realize that they're a sinner, and when they stand in the presence of God or they come into the presence of God, their head immediately drops down because they know that they just don't measure up. Well, they're the ones that are going to look for a healing. But those that hold their heads up high and they, they walk into God's presence and say, you know, hey, partner, you know, we're right on the same line here with one another, well, they're never going to look for a Savior. So, Jesus uh, speaking there. And then he goes, oh, what shall we do? And this is the crowds. And he, he answered them, well, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Now, that's not going to get you into heaven. But that'll be an evidence that God is doing a work in your heart. That you're looking beyond yourself. Your needs have been taken care of, and now, rather than storing up for yourself, or is mine, you don't get it, I worked hard for you, you don't deserve it, or whatever, but your heart is open to other people here. He continues, now the tax collectors. Now the tax collectors were not the most favorite people of society. Uh, no, exactly, even today, they're not the most favorite people of society, as most of you would agree. Can I get an amen? Yes. Uh, Jay, who's that guy that you like? Uh, Bob the Barber or something? Ed the Barber, Ed the Barber. yeah. Anyhow, um, tax collectors are not the most popular people in the world. Um, but what was even worse with these folks here in this time is that the tax collectors were Jewish people. The Jews were under the control, political control, governmental control of the Romans. And what the, the tax collector position was, it was in some ways, a coveted position because it was a way to get very, very wealthy. And even though you were living under the subjugation of another country or empire or something like that, you could live quite comfortably if you were a tax collector in that particular system. Now, the Roman government, they would come and say, all right, I'm the new tax collector. They would come to me and say, look, here's the deal. It's your job. Everyone in every town, we want you to collect 100 bucks a family. They would, they would fix some number. Nobody out there knew that number but what they said in a back room to that tax collector. And that tax collector said, well, I'm going to need a little help here. People aren't going to just hand me a hundred bucks. So they would send soldiers with that tax collector. So here's this Jewish man, very clearly Jewish, looking Jewish with their uh, garb and outfit and everything, coming with these Roman soldiers, looking very Roman, very tall, very strong, very sword-bearing. Uh, and they would come to your house and knock on your door and say, Hey, I, it's that time, I'm sorry. I know I'm ne it's never pleasant to see me. It's time for you to pay the $150 taxes to the Roman government. Now they, 
sort of had some suspicions because the Roman soldiers were probably like, you know, like this. They, they could tell that something wasn't quite right about this, but if they balked at the idea, then the soldiers stepped up and the swords, you know, came out of the little sheath and all that sort of stuff. And so who are they mad at? They're mad at the tax collector. How could you? I'm your brother. I'm a fellow Jew. And you would sell me out so you could have a nice house up on the, the hills of the Galilee? Come on, man. And they were like, eh. and so they would rip off their fellow Jews. So tax collectors were hated. They, whenever you have examples in the scripture of like the really bad people of society, I try to think of the examples I use when I'm trying to make like some example where we compare ourselves with the bad people of society. And many times on a Sunday morning, I'll say something like, you know, uh, the, the bank robbers or something like that, or people that are killing kittens. I'll use those examples. They're the really bad people of our society or something. Well, in Jesus' day, the really bad people of society were the tax collectors and the prostitutes. And so here are these guys, these tax collectors, not just one of them, but a group of them. They have a convention or something in the wilderness, and they make their way there, and they come to be baptized. So it's not that they don't want to be religious or something like that. They want to have this relationship. But the Pharisees wouldn't accept them, wouldn't allow them to come and to sit and to listen or to be taught or to whatever. But maybe this crazy fella with the camel's hair out in the wilderness, maybe he will. And he did. And so they were coming and being baptized. And now they pose this question. And they said, well, what, what shall we do? And uh, they said, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Very straightforward. Isn't that something, though? Because that, that's down to the nitty-gritty of life. Live your life in a way that is marked by honesty and integrity, and that'll be proof that God is doing a work in your heart and that you're preparing your heart to receive him when he comes. Then, so then soldiers. Now, these are probably not Jewish soldiers. They're probably Romans. But it says, soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? And so he said, maybe they came along with the tax collectors, you know, maybe they all traveled together. What shall we do? And so he said to them, well, three things you guys need to do. Number one, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. You know, so these Roman soldiers will come in and they'll uh, push their weight around a little bit. I think the way it's literally uh, translated is, put no man in fear. Certainly the sword would put you in fear. And so you'll pay what you have to pay, and you'll do what you have to do. Or they come with these false threats. You do what I say, or I have you thrown in jail. Who are they going to believe, me or you? I'm a Roman soldier. What are you? You're just a dirty Jew. Okay, okay, I'll do whatever you say, sir. But this idea, put no man in fear... And, you know, if we want to translate in that into ours, maybe we're not pulling swords on people, but maybe we do, we have certain power in certain way where we can intimidate or we try to intimidate people to do things a certain way according to our liking. John is essentially saying, don't do that. Just be who you're going to be. Don't try to, like, uh, get over on people and um, manipulate people and intimidate people. And he says, and be content with your wages. That would be their measure of repentance he says to them so verse 15 continues it says now as the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning john whether he might be the christ john knowing this or 
he's not dumb, he can hear what's going on. He answered them, and he said. So, as more and more people are gathering and the crowds are rising uh, and this stuff, word is, people are starting to talk. Have you heard about this guy out in the wilderness? I'm telling you, he's something different. He's unlike anything you've ever seen before or known before. Now, we have no record of prophet. John is really like an Old Testament prophet in many ways. We have no record of Old Testament prophets for four or five hundred years in Jewish history. So anyone that is alive had never really seen anything like this before. And so they're beginning to ask the question, do you think this is the Messiah? You know, right now he's talking, but who knows what he's going to do. If he makes his way out of that wilderness and into the, the populated areas there, maybe this is the one. So John answers this. It's not, they're not saying that they necessarily asked him. They're questioning in their hearts. John hears it, notices it, sees it. So he answers them, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. Is that my water? Yeah. Thanks. John is called by Jesus in another place the greatest of all the prophets. I think the reason for that is because all the prophets, they looked sort of in like, with like a, a distant eye, you know, kind of they're, they're seeing something that's not there. They looked ahead into the future, but they never actually got to see it. John actually got to point to it, what he was talking about. And so I think that's why he's the greatest of all the prophets. But John certainly is a remarkable fellow. He's got crowds that are gathering around him. And what does he do with it? The temptation, I think, for all of us would be to set up the John the Baptist ministries and the John the Baptist TV show and John the Baptist t-shirts and all these sorts of things. But rather what John does is he deflects all of that to the one that he came to point out in the first place. That this wasn't supposed to be about John. And I think one of the dangerous things is, even in our own lives, is we may set out with great intentions, and suddenly attention may come our way, and we kind of change the route we were going on. We were all about the Lord initially, but now suddenly, hey, yeah, people know my name, and thinking about me, and so on and so forth. But John deflects all that, and he says, you know what, there's another that is coming. You think, some of you think I'm something? And you think that, you know, I'm uh, perhaps the Christ? Let me tell you, there's another coming that I couldn't even carry his sandals. That's how great he is. Now, that particular task to carry the sandals was a low-level position of the, the servants. And John said, I'm even lower than that to be able to do that here. He says, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. I'm bringing you into water checking you know, with you and saying, look, are you sure you want to do this? Do you really want to repent of your sins and bear fruit of that repentance? And people say yes, and I say, all right, well then, let's do it. Let's wash you clean in this figurative sense. Let's drop you under and let's bring you back up. He said, that's all I'm doing. There's another that is coming. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. He said, think of that. Now, the Holy Spirit... I believe this refers to Jesus, the situation of Pentecost and, and uh, beyond in our lives here as we come into a relationship with the Lord. We, we talk about this phrase, you know, the Holy Spirit comes into our lives um, and resides in us and so on. That's what he does in the life of a believer. I think the baptism with fire refers to judgment. And I don't think that pertains to the believer. 
I think that pertains to the unbeliever. And so Jesus is going to baptize with both the Holy Spirit and with fire, though not all of us are going to experience both of those types of baptism. Then he goes on and explains here a little further, verse 17. He says, and his winnowing fork is in his hand. So think of like a big pitchfork of sorts. And the idea here of the winnowing fork, it goes on, it says, to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barns. Now, a threshing floor was essentially a flat stone of some form. And they would take the grain, whatever it may be, and they would beat it out on the stone. They would also, they sometimes would use a millstone and have an animal grind it. Uh, But let's just use one of those examples. They would beat it out there, and then everything would essentially be laying on that stone. And they would take this pitchfork of sorts, and they would just kind of pick it up and and throw it up, just straight up above them into the air. And that which was uh, the grain would sink down. That which was just sort of a chaffy, dusty sort of a thing, the wind would kind of blow it out of there. And then eventually they would sort through that. And as it says there, uh, the wheat would be gathered into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. The idea that there will be uh, a baptism of the Holy Spirit, that would be the wheat, the believers, and then the unquenchable fire would be the unbeliever that the Lord is going to uh, be able to see into the hearts of man and know those who are his. So then verse 18 it says, And so with many other exhortations he preached good news to the people. And when we exhort someone, we try to direct their thinking. We try to bring them to the place of, can't you see? Where we show them a particular thing and say, can't you see this? Don't you understand? Don't you know? And exhort. What was John's exhortation to the people? You're in need of a savior. Whether you're a tax collector, whether you're a soldier, whether you're a part of the general population, if you will, whether you are a Pharisee that is coming, you're in need of a savior. Prepare your heart, because he's coming. So with many other exhortations, he preached the good news to the people. Now verse 19, we jump ahead here. By the way, chapter 3, compared to chapter 2, is about a year and a half later. No, it's about 18 years or so later. Now, verse 19, we are about a year and a half after the events we started looking at. Um, Because remember, Jesus was 12 at the end of chapter 2. This is roughly when they're about 30, him and John. And so now, here where we go into verse 19, it says, But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, He added this too to the many things he did wrong, that he locked up John in prison. Now, so again, that's 18 years future. That has nothing to do with this period of baptism. Um, John is now making his way uh, into general population there, and he encounters the leader of society, this Herod here, the Tetrarch. And Herod had taken his brother's wife as his own wife, and it wasn't a situation where, you know, Herod's brother died or whatever, and he was a generous guy, and, oh, I'll take her as my wife. It was one of those, you're out, I'm taking your wife, she's mine kind of thing. And they were living in sin. And John the Baptist didn't beat around a bush about sin. And he called Herod out. Mark chapter 6, he calls Herod out, and he says, you're sinning, what you're doing is wrong. Well, Herod, what? Who's this guy? So he puts John in prison for that. And I think you, maybe you're familiar with the story a little bit later on, um, as a gift to uh, his wife's uh, daughter, 
he decides to give John the Baptist's head on a platter to this little girl, this young girl, young woman probably. Um, so uh, not only did he put John in prison, but he also had John killed. Um, verse 21, now when all the people were baptized, back to uh, the original story, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened. And it goes on and it talks about some things we'll look at. So a couple things here. Jesus uh, blended in, if you will. He was just sort of a regular fella in, in the society. There wasn't, he didn't come in glowing or anything like that. Also, it, it's sort of worded here as if everybody else was in line, and Jesus said, no, you go ahead, you go ahead, you go ahead. And he's at the back of the line, and now John is just about to wrap up, and the last one is going to be Jesus. That's not really the way that uh, it should be looked at. Jesus was just amongst the many that were out there that were being baptized. The next thing that I see here, it says, and Jesus was praying. Jesus, the Son of God, was in communion with his Father. This word here, praying, um, there's a number of different words that are used in the New Testament for prayer. Um, very similar in our society. We talk about, some people say, I don't know how to pray. And we have like formulas. All right, I'll help you pray. Um, when you pray, begin by just adoring the Lord. And then, you know, get into a time of confession for your sin. And then give thanks to the Lord for the works that he's done. And then ask the Lord, your, or present your request, supplicate. Uh, and if you notice, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication, acts, A-C-T-S. And so sometimes we say that. And there's other forms like that. But we all know there's different types of prayer. Sometimes we're asking God for things. Other times we're giving him thanks for uh, some great things. We, many times we're confessing our sins. And other times we're just simply praising him, adoring him for who he is. That's the word, actually, for this type of prayer that Jesus is doing here. It refers to a prayer of adoration, where the Lord and the Father are just having this time of communing with one another in that way. And so it says that Jesus had been baptized and was praying. I believe it's six yeah, I believe it's six different times we read of Jesus praying. Specifically, I'm sure he prayed every day of his life and all throughout the day probably, but six times particularly I believe in the gospels or at least in the book of Luke where Jesus is praying. And it raises a, an interesting I think question and point for us. If Jesus needed to pray, don't you think we should be people of prayer? I don't really. I don't think I know any believer that ever said, "You know what? I pray just about the right amount." You know, I'm, I'm good. I think everyone, real, all of us, as we pray, we realize we need to pray even more than that. And so, Jesus does set this example for us. And so, I'd encourage you. Um, all of our prayer lives could be better, I'm sure. And I'd encourage you um, to really work at that, develop that, uh, build that time of communion in. Um, a lot of times I think we take the easy way out and we say, oh yeah, I pray while I'm driving. And, and that's good. But I do think that we really need times, and I need, definitely really need times to just stop everything I'm doing and take that time to listen and to adore the Lord and to confess my sins and give Him thanks and so on and so forth. All right, so Jesus here is praying. Do you think that uh, John the Baptist knew it was his cousin? I don't know. Um, I don't know. I'm trying to think of other places. 
But he didn't know he was the Lord, like in that sense, yet. Did he know he was cousin Jesus from that other town? I don't know. My suspicion is maybe they they were never saw each other. Yeah, perhaps. Okay, just curious. It's a fun question to consider. So notice it says, and then the heavens were opened. So here you picture Jesus, you know, coming out of the water. The water's dripping off him, uh, and then suddenly the heavens open, and the Holy Spirit descends on the Lord Jesus in bodily form, and it it's, compares it to a dove, like a dove, but it wasn't like, it wasn't a spiritual thing, it was a literal bird of sorts or whatever that is coming and descending on him, and John is, Luke I should say, is quick to point out that it was the Holy Spirit, descends on Jesus like a dove, and a voice comes from heaven, which the context makes it very clear, this is the voice of the Father, And he says, you are my beloved son, and with you I am well pleased. Now, notice you have the Holy Spirit, you have the Father, and you have the Son. So here you have an example of a place in the scripture of the Trinity. Now, raise your hand if you feel you absolutely understand the Trinity. Well, you will in two weeks. Um, In two weeks, uh, Mark actually, Dr. Mark, excuse me, uh, is going to be presenting, um, what's your title? Everything you need to know about the Trinity well, in 45 I, I minutes? You can weigh whether you're going to learn anything. <laughs> yes, we will look at it. Okay, so we're going to look at the Trinity in two weeks. Um, I'm actually going to be away, and Mark's going to teach uh, for us that particular evening um, on sort of the, the Trinity. Not on it, sort of, it, on the Trinity here. <laughs> but here is an example. Here's an example of it found there. A couple of things I appreciate is uh, it says, This is my son in whom I'm well pre- well pleased. Jesus here is just about, yeah, not even, it's going to go on another month or two, but he's just about to begin his public ministry. Prior to that time, he was just an average guy living in an average town. He was a remarkable kid. Teachers loved having him in class because he did everything he was supposed to do, I'm sure. But the Lord, the Father says, I'm well pleased with who you are and the life that you've lived this last 30 years. And you know, I think it's important for us because we know Jesus was a son of a carpenter. That is, his earthly father was a carpenter and Jesus learned the practice. It's pretty clear that Jesus' earthly father, Joseph, had died at some point in time and that Jesus had sort of become the head of the household or uh, the provider there, taking care of his mom. We see on the cross that he turns to John, his disciple, and he says, would you take care of my mom? And so it seems like his dad is off of the scene there. And Jesus just went about his responsibilities of everyday life well. And he honored the Lord in those things. Not in the preaching of his sermons and the leading of Bible studies and the telling of stories or of the healing of people. There's no record of Jesus doing any of those things uh, in his early life. And yet the Father says, I'm well pleased. And so I think there is a valuable lesson for us for the things that we do. You know, Do we coach our kids' teams with honor and with integrity? When we go off to our place of work, do we do so in a way that God would look and say, man, good job today. You know, as we interact with our neighbors in our communities and in our towns, do we do so in a way that is pleasing to the Lord, even without us opening our mouth and preaching a sermon? And so he says, I'm well pleased. And Jesus here is baptized. Now, why is Jesus baptized? If this was all about repentance, 
that John was uh, getting to, and he was calling people to prepare their hearts for the coming of the kingdom of God. Well, Jesus didn't need to repent. You tell me that he's sinless, right? Uh, so he doesn't need to repent. So Jesus here isn't coming to repent as everybody else is. Jesus, though, in this baptism, is coming to identify with humanity. And so he's coming alongside of them. He's standing in the same line with them, which is what Jesus did with his incarnation. He became man so that he could identify with man, so that he could put one hand on humanity and one hand on God because he's both of those and become that bridge for us. Ironically, it becomes a cross for us here. And so he goes, he's baptized, Jesus is. Other places we see that John begins to realize, oh my, look at that, as he sees it. Now we go on to verse 23, and this is Jesus' genealogy. Now, we have two genealogies of the Lord that are uh, presented to us in the Gospels. One of them is found in the book of Matthew. The other one is here in uh, the book of Luke. John uh, sort of gives us a genealogy. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's Jesus' genealogy. You know, so he's abbreviated there. But Luke and Matthew, they give us more typical genealogies where they're listing lots and lots of names and so on. And so it begins in verse 23. It says, now when Jesus, when he began his ministry, he was about 30 years of age, which would be the age of a rabbi, and being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Matat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Jani, Dei, the son of Joseph, the son of Matateus, do we have to go through all of them? The son of Amos, we'll do them all. The son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Nagai, the son of Maath, the son of Matatheus, the son of Simeon, the son of Josek, the son of Joda, the son of Joannin, the son of Ressa, the son of Zerubbabel, and the son of Sheltiel, the son of Nerai, the son of Melchi, the son of Adi, the son of Kasim, the son of Elmadam, the son of Ur, the son of Joshua, the son of Eleazar, the son of Joram, the son of Matat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Eliakim, the son of Malia, the son of Mena, the son of Matathia. That's in there a lot, that name, or close, some form of it. Anyway, the son of Nathan, the son of David. We know that name. Continues, the son of Jesse. We know that name. The son of Obed, the son of Boaz, usually the women of the group say, oh, because everyone loves Boaz, especially the ladies. Uh, the son of Salah, the son of Nashon, the son of Aminadab, the son of Admin, the son of, uh, is it A-R-N-I or A-M-I? A-R-N-I. I thought so. Uh, son of Arnie, uh, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, who was the son of Jacob, who was the son of Isaac, who was the son of Abraham who was the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Sarag, the son of Reu, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, and the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxad, the son of Shem, who was the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Mm. That's a lot of names. Now, Luke has a purpose here 
as we said, the purpose of genealogies, because uh, sometimes we look at it like, all right, why do I need to know all of these names here? The purpose of genealogies is to serve, as we said, as a bridge. That the writer is trying to take you from here, this place in time, to there, that particular place in time, to make a point. And his point is going to be, because remember, one of the things that Luke is uniquely interested in is this idea of Jesus as the God-man, this incarnation. It just seems to have really captivated Luke's thinking. This guy is real, is God, but he's, he was a real man. He wasn't just some spirit you know, sort of thing, but he was a real man. So Luke will go in and he'll talk about things that really uniquely pull out this, the fact of Jesus' humanity here. And here, he traces the genealogy of Jesus all the way back to the first man, and then even back further than that to God himself who created that first man. So that's one thing that's significant about this particular genealogy is where Luke traces it back to. The second thing that is significant is the way in which this genealogy differs from the one that is in Matthew. So if you would please, you can hold your finger in Luke, if you would just flip over to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew actually begins his book right with the genealogy. Yeah. He does not go all the way back to Adam, but he goes back to Abraham. Now Matthew, Levi was his original name, um, was a Jew. Ironically, we talked earlier, he was a Jewish tax collector. That God got a hold of his heart, Jesus got a hold of his heart, and he repented of his sins. But Matthew wrote his gospel to Jewish people. And so, if you're trying to prove the credentials of a Jewish person, you're going to go back to the the starting of the Jewish people, and that is Abraham. And so you see in verse 2, that's really where the genealogy begins. So he gives us, he says, the book of genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So a few people are mentioned. But then he jumps in and he says, and Abraham was the father of Isaac. Oh no, is he going to do it again? You know, I'm going to read it again. No, I'm not. Um, Abraham was the father of Isaac, the father of Jacob, and, and so on and so forth. And it goes from Abraham, you can see in verse 6 there, through David. Notice it says, and David was the father of Solomon. And then it goes through all of that. And then down in verse 16, it says, And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called the Christ. So that one is going back to Abraham. Actually, verses 2 through verse 6 of Matthew is the same as the genealogy portion of those people that we read in Luke, just in reverse order. All right. So from Abraham to David... The, or, the, num, the names that are listed, nothing is different. But, if you notice in verse 6, it says, and David was the father of Solomon. Go over back to Luke now, uh, chapter 3, and looking at uh, verse 31, remember it's in reverse order. So it says, the son of Nathan, the son of David. So the genealogy that is given in Matthew now diverts and goes a different portion of the family tree. It's looking at one of David's children, and it's following the line of Solomon. 
in Matthew. But in, uh, in Luke, it's following one of David's children by the name of Nathan. So obviously, if we're now branching off from David's family, we're going to end up somewhere different, right? But it doesn't seem that way. If you, again, if you look at Matthew, Matthew ends uh, in verse 16, and it says, Jacob, the father of Joseph. But well, we know that Joseph was Jesus' earthly father. Notice it says, the husband of Mary, because really, Joseph just came along for the ride in some regards. He, he wasn't really the dad of Jesus here. Mary was the one who was uh, the parent, the mother of uh, the Lord. But notice it says that Joseph's father is a guy by the name of Jacob. Flip back to Luke, please. You're like, oh, right, we don't care. No, I'm sure you do. But if you, yes, it is, my brother. If you flip back to Luke, where it's talking about Joseph, where's that? That'll be at the beginning there. Yeah, in verse 23, there it says Joseph, the son of Levi. Hmm. I thought he was the son of Jacob. What's going on here? I see Kathy Anderson is very concerned. All right, here. Now, one of the things I also want to point out, in Matthew, notice it says, the father of Jacob, the father of Judah, the father of, you know, so on and so forth. King James will say, and so and so begot so and so, who begot so and so, and things like that. That's a word which means uh, the offspring of. Okay? So, like, the dad gave the seed to the woman, and they had this kid. That, that's the begot means, or uh, the father of. When you get to the book of Luke, it says the son of, the son of, the son of. Now, a son can be my kid, like that comes from my um, offspring, is one of my offspring, but it could also refer to a son-in-law. And, you know, like we call our kids, hi, dad, you know, and my parents, my wife's uh, parents aren't my real dad, but we call them mom and dad, uh, and so on. And so here, the genealogy that you have in Matthew is the genealogy of Joseph to Jesus, who it was supposed to be the father of the Lord. The one that you have in Luke, where it, even though that it says Joseph in verse 23, uh, and it says the son of Heli, we would change that more properly. We would say the son-in-law of Heli. And the word can mean either one of those things. So this fellow Heli here, that's Mary's dad. And from this is Mary's genealogy that you have here. So Mary can trace her to heritage back to David. Joseph can trace his back to David. One goes through Solomon. One goes through Nathan here. Um, so Jesus there is of that line. Now, Last point that I want to make, and an interesting, I think at least, interesting point that I want to make, and I'll, I'll leave you for the night. Uh, turn please to Jeremiah chapter 22. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 22. And... The verse is verse 28. Now you should remember this name. Uh, we looked at it as we were closing out the book of Second Chronicles. Uh, there was a king by the name of Jeconiah. Um, his, 
he also went by the name of uh, Jehoiakim, I believe it was. Uh, here in Jeremiah, look at you can look at verse uh, well, twenty-eight. Here in, in Jeremiah, he's called Keniah, but that's Jeconiah, Jehoiakim. It was one of the kings of Israel of Judah. Excuse me. Um, remember David's line: When David died, Solomon became king. When Solomon died, the the kingdom was divided in half. The offspring of Solomon, they ruled over Judah. So the line of David continued over Judah for the next 500, 600 years. The, the people of the north, they went after military leaders and other things. No relation back to King David, other than the fact that they were all Jews or something like that. Okay, One of those kings way down the line, one of the sons of Solomon, was a king by the name of Jeconiah, also known as Jehoiakim. And here, you'll notice, and Jeconiah was a wicked king, um, unfortunately. Verse 28 says, in, Is this man, Keniah, a despised, broken pot, a vessel no one cares for? Why are he and his children hurled and cast into a land that they do not know? O oh, land, 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 hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, Write this man down as childless, a man who shall not succeed in his days, for none of his offspring shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David and ruling again in Judah. Now, I think Satan thought he wins there. Wins here. I've destroyed the messianic line. Because it's through Jeconiah that the Messiah would have to come because it was through that line of David, that royal line that went through. And now there will be no royal line in that regard here. And so... I bring it up because we see that Jesus is a rightful descendant of David through Mary's line in Luke, but not through Joseph's line that is found in Matthew. And he wasn't really technically a descendant of Joseph's anyway. Well, anyway, that's Luke chapter 3. It's giving us an introduction to uh, the place that Jesus has in society and his claim to uh, be a Messiah that's important. And Luke knows it's important, so he does his research and he pulls that out and presents that to us. Uh, we'll, we'll see more of John the Baptist as we go a little bit further in the Gospels. Uh, it just kind of pops on the scene every now and again. Um, but that's Luke 3.